ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Have chemists solved the origin of life? I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future, and today we have on the show with us Dr. Jim Tour. Dr. Tour needs no introduction for many of our listeners, but he is professor of material science and nanoengineering at Rice University, an eminent scientist with hundreds of peer-reviewed publications. He holds a PhD in synthetic, organic, and organometallic chemistry from Purdue University and did postdoctoral work at the University of Wisconsin at Stanford. His website, Dr. James Tour, drjamestour.com, has links to his many social media sites, including his YouTube channel, which has a wealth of information and criticisms of the chemical origin of life. So I highly encourage our listeners to go to drjamestour.com. So Dr. Tour, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show with us today. Thank you, Casey. Appreciate yeah. that. And, and let me let me just clarify, my, my professional website is jm, M like Mitchell, jmtour.com. And my social media channel is drjamestour.org. Oh, .org. Okay, well, thank you yeah. for clarifying that. Go check those out and be sure to find Dr. Tour's YouTube channel. So the occasion for us having you on ID the Future today is that you recently published a chapter in the newly released book, Science and Faith and Dialogue, published by the South African academic publisher, AOSIS. Now, this book is open access, but your chapter is therefore free to download, and I encourage folks to do that. It's titled, Our Present Proposals on the Chemical Evolutionary Mechanisms Accurately Pointing Towards the First Life. And it's a very nice summary of your own research as well as current problems with the origin of life theories. So I'd like to get into that, but first, you are a synthetic chemist, Dr. Tour. So I'd like to ask you, what is a synthetic chemist? Does that mean that you're not a real chemist, but one that was synthesized, or does it mean that you you make stuff? What does it mean to be a synthetic chemist? A synthetic chemist is a chemist which, which makes chemicals, makes compounds. There's analytical chemists that measure a lot of things. There's physical chemists that, that also measure things and interpret, but the chemists who actually make molecules for a living, they're called synthetic chemists. It could be an organic chemist, can be an inorganic chemist. Uh, they can focus more specifically on materials or natural products or pharmaceuticals. So synthetic chemists can be broadly across many different fields, but they're the ones that make things. Okay, great. And you have made some very interesting things in your research. I, again, assume that some of our listeners will be familiar with your research designing these miniature molecular machines, which you call nano vehicles. And I know you've spoken about these nano cars, nano vehicles quite a bit, but can you tell us a little bit about what these nano vehicles are and and how easy are they to build? Well, they're not as difficult for us as they used to be. Once you've made certain pieces, you can just take your laboratory notebook and, and, and mimic the things that the people who've gone before you have done. So we already know how to make the wheels. We don't know how to make axles and chassis. It's when we vary them and then that, that takes more work. But it took many years for us to develop the first ones. And then we build upon those parts. How difficult is it? Well, to a synthetic chemist, if you're following the protocols that we've already come up with, it's not that difficult. I mean, you just, it's just going to take you a, a month or two in, in the lab, probably a couple of months, and you can get this thing made. If you're doing it for the first time and you didn't have the protocols in hand, as a synthetic chemist, it took us, as, as a group of synthetic chemists, it took us years. Uh, uh, we made the first chassis and axles fairly quickly, and then it took us 
I would say five years to get the wheels on first generation of wheels. So you can get kind of hung up at different places. So obviously you could say that today it's very easy to make life. You just need a cell and that cell can replicate and make more life. So once you get the process going, it's not so hard, but getting the process started, that takes a lot of work. So it sounds like these nano cars did take a lot of work at the outset for you guys to determine exactly you know, how to build them, how to put the parts together. Does this have implications for the origin of life? If, it's, if it takes that much work to produce a man-made uh, molecular machine, what, how, would, how could nature do that? Well, a, a cell is much, much more complex than our nanocars. So it, it, you, you can get all, all the chemists in the world together and say, make a cell and it can't be done. They'll say, well, at least we could make the vesicle, the outer membrane, and no, they can't because the outer membrane, it's, it's a, actually a, a bilayer membrane and we don't know how to make the inner layer different than the outer layer. So usually the outer layer will have saturated, fully hydrocarbon chains and, and the inner layer will have what's called uh, unsaturated systems. You'll have a lot of double bonds in there, most of them being cis double bonds. But so we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to put the pieces in there. We don't know how to build the pieces for this. So it's a big, big problem. I mean, that, 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 we, that we can't do yet. One day, but certainly not today and not in the near future. So in your chapter, Dr. Tor, you talk about some necessary aspects of any synthetic chemistry experiment, and including presumably those related to the origin of life. They're trying to synthesize molecules that are thought to be relevant and necessary for life. And I'd like to go through some of these necessary aspects of synthetic chemistry experiments. You talk about purification. Uh, what is purification and why is that necessary after each step in a synthesis experiment? Okay, so generally your syntheses don't yield 100% pure product. And so you have to get them really pure to go on to the next step or else those impurities suck up your starting material. And further, after they've taken up your starting material, they end up interfering with the chemical reaction. So you, you have to use pure materials. You say, well, my material is, the impurities are, are close to the structure of the material that I want. And then it's all the more of a problem because then it will, it will mimic and it'll, it'll start interfering in, in, a, in a more clandestine sort of fashion. So you have to be able to purify at each step to get your, your, your starting materials pure for the new step. And then what you've made, you have got to get, the, to get that product for the next step pure. So without purification, you're, you're in big trouble. And this is what happens. I mean, organic reactions are rarely 100%. And even if you're 90% pure, that 10% it causes a real hassle in the, in, the, in the following steps. So you're going to have to purify often. So I guess the obvious follow-up question then is, would purification be possible on the early Earth? I mean, a chemist can do it, a skilled chemist can do it, but does the early Earth have the ability to filter out those unwanted products? Well, a chemist cannot always do it. There's many reactions where, that, we, that are so messy, we cannot purify them. And, and uh, I'll refer you to the origin of life chemists reactions. I mean, they, they often will make billions of compounds and they can't purify them. And 
often even if they make 10 compounds, they can't purify it. So what they do is they just identify it by looking at it in a system where it will identify that it's there, and then they'll buy the pure material. So even from many of their reactions, they can't purify. So it's not always the case that a chemist can do it. Now, can early earth do it? Well, sometimes if, say, the impurities precipitate out as a solid and the material that you want stays in solution, then it's, it's sort of self-purifying in that way. Uh, you had mentioned filtration. Filtration only works when you have a solid and then something that's not a solid, something that's in solution that's going to go through. Are there natural filtering systems? There are. Soil can act as a natural filtering system. But you, you got to make sure that what you don't want doesn't come through. So there are natural ways to do things, but they can only do very simple things, complex separations are very hard in a non-biological world, in, a, in an early earth world where there, there isn't biology to help you through this. What about the instability of intermediate products? Why is this a problem for prebiotic synthesis experiments? Well, the, the materials that you're making are unstable under the very conditions in which they formed. So they always have a half-life. So, so for example, when you're doing carbohydrate synthesis, you make a product and that's the one you want, but it doesn't know that that's the one you want. So it goes on and makes other things. So under the very reaction conditions that things are made, they're often not stable and they end up forming other things. So you, you've, you have an instability problem even under the very conditions that the thing was made. So the chemist will be in there and they'll be watching it. And when it's optimized, they'll right away stop the reaction. They'll stop the reaction by adding a quenching agent or something to get out the compound that they want. Then the problem comes, okay, so now I've isolated my compound. I've stopped it. Now I've got to purify it to get away from the impurities. Now I have a nice pure compound. But if I leave that compound out in the sunlight and in air, it starts decomposing fairly rapidly. And uh, you might say, well, the atmosphere was, wasn't so oxidizing back then. Well, actually, more recent data is suggesting it was very similar to the atmosphere that we have now. But even if you say it was, wasn't so oxidizing, it was more reducing. So you had more sulfur around, you had more ammonia around, you had less oxygen around. Still, those are degrading substances. Sulfur, if you have that around, that can, those are thiols. They can, they can add quite well in a conjugate fashion. Uh, they're very good nucleophiles. If you have ammonia around, that can form imines. That can take off protons. So, so uh, all of these reactions are occurring. And so you get, you get photodegradation from sunlight. So once you've made something, generally in a laboratory, what you'll do is you put it in a bottle. You'll flush that bottle to get all the air out, flush it with nitrogen, cap it up and then put it in the freezer away from light, often wrapping it in aluminum foil so it doesn't get exposed to light. If somebody opens up the refrigerator or something, put it, or the freezer, and keep it cold to slow down the degradation. Nature doesn't have an early earth to, to do all that for you. So, so decomposition of the final product, even if it somehow got away from all the impurities that formed in the reaction, is also a problem. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me in your chapter was you talked about how when you form a molecule, it will often have various isomers. And of course, those are compounds with the same chemical formula, but different structures. And that's a problem because you can form all these isomers, but only one of them maybe is the one that life is using. And how are you going to discriminate between the ones that you want, the ones that you don't want? That's a real problem. And I, I think that for a lot of us who are familiar with some of these problems, it's it's not always apparent just how much 
variation there is in the products, the intermediate products, and, and what you need to do to get to each next step. You also mentioned that in prebiotic chemistry, reagent addition order is critical. Uh, what do you mean by this, and why is that so important? Well, it's like baking a cake. If you say, well, the first step, I'll add the icing to the flour. We know that doesn't work. So there's a reagent order that you have to use. The same thing is, is, is in chemistry. You have to add reagent one, then reagent two, then reagent three, and add them in that order. Just like if you add the icing to the flour in the beginning, you're not going to have a very good cake. The chemistry doesn't work if you get them out of order. And chemistry is, is usually a lot more demanding than is cooking. You have to have re reagent concentration. You, you can't just eyeball it. I mean, uh, uh, if, you, if you have the stoichiometry wrong, that's, that's often a big problem. And when the reagents aren't going in the, the right order, you don't get the product that you want. So all of those strictures are upon us in synthesis. And they would be on an early earth, or just because it happens on an early earth, it doesn't get away from this. You also talk about bringing up material from the rear. Why is this important in synthetic chemistry? And why does that pose a problem for these prebiotic synthesis experiments? Right. So, so reactions are rarely ever 100%. So say you start with one gram of compound, you change the structure, your yield was 50%. Now you have half a gram. If you go on the next step, your yield is 50%. Now you have 0.25 grams. You do that again, your yield is 50%. You have 0.125 grams. So you, you keep decreasing the amount. So after several steps, you're down to 10 milligrams from one gram. Now that's if you have 50% yield. That's often pretty good, especially for a first time reaction. The reactions that, that these origin of life experimenters often get, the yields are fractions of a percent. So now you've gone from one gram, say to 0 0.01 grams after one step, and now you've gone to 0 0.001 grams. So now you've run out of material. So what you have to do is you have to go back to the beginning and make more. And you look at the conditions that, that were optimized for you. But if you don't have a laboratory notebook, you don't know how to go back and make more. You got to just, just, you know, start flipping coins all over again because you haven't kept any record of it. So this is the problem. Uh, it's the whole material transfer problem. So, yeah, so th this is basically mass transfer, what you're talking about. Yes. Okay. Yes. So in your chapter, you talk about also the RNA world model for the origin of life. Some listeners may be familiar with the work of John Sutherland and his team, which purported to generate these pyrimidine ribonucleotides under prebiotic conditions needed for RNA. But did he really show that these nucleotides could arise naturally without guidance on the early earth? When we consider all these various problems that prebiotic synthesis experiments encounter, was he able to solve these or did he sort of make the mistakes that, that you're talking about? Well, he used extremely exacting conditions. So when he says that they would have been prebiotically available, that's if you have exact addition order and you have all of these exact chemicals. So he's using very strict conditions, but we'll give it to him. You want to do that? That's fine. Even if you look at what he made, it was not an antipure. It was not it, it, it had an antimer in there. So that was a problem. He had the control of the stereocenters was not absolute. So even he had other diastereomers in there. So he had a lot of other isomers already in there. So it would be unusable. It would be unusable. So even what he made was unusable. 
Now, that's not to detract from very interesting chemistry that he did. Nonetheless, it's not set up to be used for life. But this paper has been widely touted as essentially showing that RNA could form naturally under early Earth conditions. I I wonder, I mean, wh- why is nobody else talking about these problems? Why is nobody else explaining that these experiments are interesting, as you said, but they're not really mimicking unguided chemical processes? Oh, they're, John Sutherland's work is the most guided chemical process you will ever see. It's, it's more guided than many synthetic reactions that synthetic chemists use. I mean, you have to have very, very strict conditions, careful pH adjustments. It, it's really quite complex. But, but if you take the ones that are a little bit less guided, like the work of Steve Benner, Steve Benner has a terrible time, and then he has to fall back on the guided synthesis work Uh, Even though he says he doesn't, he has to. I mean, you read his papers, he has to. And then his stuff is so impure at each step. At each step, it's so impure, he has to buy the starting material for the next step because he can't take it on more than one step. It's an utter mess. It's totally unusable. So even in the, whether it be guided or the presumably hands-off synthesis, as Steve Benner would call it, these things are so messy that they're totally unusable. Well, we're so grateful to have someone who can translate these papers for us. Because, I mean, I've read these papers, and if you're not in the field, it's hard to appreciate some of these facts. But let's say, uh, hypothetically, that someone was able to make the four requisite molecules needed for life. We've got carbohydrates, you made lipids, you made amino acids, you made nucleic acids. Is that enough to make a living cell? For example, what would be needed to make a functional cell membrane that would qualify for a living, a living membrane? No, you couldn't make any of them. First of all, you, for, for the first three classes that you mentioned, the carbohydrates and the nucleotides and the amino acids, you have to first be able to polymerize those. We do not know how to polymerize those on, using early earth conditions. Not going to happen. So we don't know how to do this. Nobody's ever done it. When you use the, the, the systems and, and these things don't, self-polymerize. I mean, you can, you can use all the borate glass that you want to use. It's not going to make the structures that you have to have because you get two five linkages rather than three five. And, and, uh, and, and, and so all of these are big problems. So you can't make the polymers. But let's just say you gave them the polymeric structures too. Well, then you don't have the information. You don't have the order that you need that defines the information. You've got a bunch of random bits that don't give you any information. So that's an unknown. Even the lipid bilayer, which you mentioned, no, you can't even do that because you have to have the outer layer has to be different than the inner layer for your proton gradient. Can't happen, won't happen. And so we don't know how to do that yet either. Only way we know how to do this is to use enzymes, flipase enzymes to to make those lipid bilayers the right way. Nobody's ever done that in a prebiotic earth-like system, but where'd you get those enzymes in the first place? you would have had to polymerize your amino acids and half the amino acids have what are called active side chains that would interfere in the polymerization. So, so you're, you're, you're dead in the water there too. So at every step, it's hard. It's not been done. It's not been demonstrated, but even let, let's just say in, in 500 years, we, we can figure out how to polymerize these. Still, even if you gave them in all the polymers, all in the uh, homochiral form, can you ever 
use these? And the answer is no, you can't, because nobody knows how to now construct the secondary structures within the cells from this. So we're really lost. Yeah, it, it, people talk about these steps as if it's so easy. You've got the monomers, now you can make polymers. Mm -hmm. But as you said, I mean, what's going to prevent these monomers from linking up in the wrong places? You get a two prime, five prime linkage, you are not going to be able to produce something that can be read by the enzymes that are used in life. It has to be three prime, prime, five prime. Um, I think back to my high school chemistry class, Dr. Tour, where my teacher would always talk about Le Chatelier's principle, where a, a reaction does not go forward in the presence of its product. And what I think a lot of folks don't appreciate is that when you link up these monomers to form polymers, that generates a water molecule. Well, supposedly all this took place in the prebiotic soup, which is, of course, an aqueous environment, a water-based environment. So how are you going to drive a reaction forward that's generating water? Pr pr creating all of these polymers requires some mechanism to basically remove the water. And I don't think that's going to happen in a prebiotic soup. Of course, they'll talk about hypotheses that maybe you know the, the soup splashed on the side of a volcano and that heated things up and that somehow dried it out. But, but now you're generating heat. And heat, of course, tends to kill off these organic molecules and, and reduces their stability greatly. So there's just one problem after another. Uh, I don't know if the dehydration synthesis problem is something that you've looked into very much, but it's always struck me that a water-based prebiotic soup is the worst place to generate these polymers. Well, that's certainly the case when you look at the dehydration reaction to make uh, polypeptides, to make your amino acids coupling. Yes, water pushes them back the other way. Uh, that's a real problem. And you, you can't get these things to form in water. You, ha you have to activate the carboxyl group. And so if you dry it out, yeah, you can push these. But as soon as you wet it, it starts going back the other way as well. The carbohydrates, it's hard to know how to form these, these polyethers. The polyethers are a little bit more stable to water. But the problem with the, the carbohydrate is it has what's called an anomeric center. And at that center, it's more hydrolytically unstable. So yes, it can go back from, from that particular center. The other centers can more, be more hydrolytically stable. Certainly, the, the half-life of RNA is quite short. Uh, you have to work with RNA under very careful conditions. But in water, RNA, you know, you might, you might on a, if, if your water is free of a lot of divalent, anion, uh, divalent ions, then you might have several months if you had a lot of the RNA, but if you had one molecule of the RNA, that time shortens tremendously. So let's say that, again, hypothetically, you could produce all of the complex molecules that are needed for a cell. Obviously, we're being incredibly generous here, but you basically have all the parts needed for a cell. They're floating around in some kind of a medium. Does that give us life? And, and this gets no. to the concept of the interactome. What is the interactome? And why is yeah. this a major barrier to the formation of life in the lab? Right. So you can put all these parts together and stir them around. They're, they're not going to hook up right. I mean, you get, you get amino acids coupling with sugars and, 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 and you get a mess. And then there's the higher level structures too. And then it, it's just the way the molecules align relative to one another. And that's the interactome that you're talking about. The interactome is an enormously complex structure by which information is passed through molecular structures that have ordered arrangements between them that are not hooked together by a full chemical bond. And so they're not hooked together by a full chemical bond. And 
So they have a little bit more flexibility, but the order, the arrangement of them. So, so there's been some calculations that in a yeast cell, you'd have 10 to the 79 billion protein-protein combinations. That's, that's, a, that's a big, big number. That's a one with 79 billion zeros after it. And numbers like that are impossible to reach by any random event. So you have to transfer this from a living system that has this order. You then split it in half and transfer it into the newer systems that you're going to be making. So the interactome adds a level of complexity that we had not thought about. And that was some discovery, I don't know, in the last 10 or 12 years. So in your final analysis, Dr. Tor, are origin of life researchers anywhere close to explaining how life arose naturally on the prebiotic earth? And would you say, are, are they disclosing to the public the weaknesses of their models? No, they're nowhere close. Nowhere close to figuring this thing out. Nowhere close to, uh, uh, and, and they're, they're getting further away from the target every year. Because even if they make a little advance, it's tiny compared to the new structural material that we're finding in a cell that's going to be required, the things that we're going to have to solve. So this interactome problem wasn't even known 20 years ago. The chiral induced spin selectivity was another problem that wasn't known 20 years ago. And so we're finding all of this needs to be solved. So the structure of even the simplest cell is getting far more complex and nothing that we can easily get at. The football field is getting longer and longer and longer as we discover more and you realize you're further and further and further away from the end zone. Correct. Correct. Okay. Well, Dr. Jim Tour, thank you so much for coming on ID the Future to talk about problems with the chemical origin of life. Again, I would encourage listeners to check out Dr. Tour's chapter in the new book, Science and Faith in Dialogue. We'll put a link in the description of the podcast where you can download it for free. His chapter, again, is titled, Our Present Proposals on Chemical Evolutionary Mechanisms Accurately Pointing Towards the First Life. And be sure to check out Dr. Tour's website. His professional website is jmtour.com, and his social media website is drjamestour.org, where you can get links to his social media sites, such as his YouTube channel. Thanks so much, Dr. Tour, for joining us. Thank you, Casey. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.